This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, sometimes I am not sure where these stories come from. For instance, if you've ever taken a CPR class, then you know about the CPR doll that gets used there, right? In the United States, it's sometimes referred to as CPR Annie. Why? Well, turns out there's a lot of history behind the CPR doll. It goes all the way back to the 19th century and maybe even to a body that was pulled out of the river in Paris. Now, that is a history we need to talk about. Dr. Ange Oseo is a, an associate professor of Romance Studies and director of the Center for French and Francophone Studies at Duke University and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your invitation. Dr. Sayo, what do we know? Was it really a body in the 19th century that led us to having a CPR doll today? So the answer is going to be quite complex. Um, it's not that direct. So the, 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 the CPR doll you're referring to, Rissusi Annie, was made uh, based on the mask of the unknown woman, unknown woman of the Seine, l'inconnu de la Seine. And it's a death mask, uh, well, supposedly a death mask of a beautiful woman, uh, quite young, certainly uh, about 16 years of age. Um, she's smiling. She has a very peaceful smile. She seems to be asleep. Her eyes are closed. And the story that went along with this mask is that she was pulled out of the river in 1902, uh, at least that how it was sold by the molder shop in Paris that was the first to produce the mask in, in a serial manner. The person who, the company who invented uh, uh, Resuciani um, was inspired by this mask. The story goes that the owner of the company um, who rescued his son from drowning uh, saw the mask and found it very appeasing and it, it found it to be very appropriate for people to learn how to save people from drowning. Uh, because according to him, you need to be working with a, a, a doll whose face was in some ways attractive or at least not something that would rebuke people from trying the mask to most CPR training. Interesting. But, but <laughs> it's more complex because we, this, the legend that was invented around the mask um, is, is, is certainly not exact. So, hmm. Okay, so what parts do we question then? Where, where do we get a little bit skeptical on it? Well, there are many elements that you can get skeptical about. The first one is um, the, story, the story in itself, or I rather should say the stories, because this mask has many stories attached to it. What we know is that this mask is, does exist. It, it was sold massively in the interwar period, first in France and then in, uh, in Germany, all over Europe, and, and soon in the US as well. Um, but... Uh, 
it's unlikely that it was made on a woman who drowned herself in the sand simply because it's too beautiful to be uh, a death mask. As you can see, if you just Google her name, you will find many uh, images of, of her face. And um, it, it does not correspond to to any, you know, to the face of people who drown, because when people drown, their uh, skin is imbued with water, there are creases, they are, mm -hmm. uh, the, the skin is not smooth, and if you apply any kind of form of plaster or, or materials on the skin, then, then you can't have the smoothness of the face. And also people are, 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 are swollen. Uh, even for someone who stay in water just a couple of, of, of minutes, uh, it would be enough for the skin and the face not to be and not to appear as, as, as peaceful. So the first thing we can be skeptical about is the fact that it was in fact a drawn woman. The second element is the date. Um, because, I mean, you can still buy it in Paris from a motor shop called Lorenzi. It's a, it's a family business that dates back from the 19th century. So this, they sold it with the legend that this woman was fished out of the Seine in 1902. But we have photographs drowning of that mask that dates back to earlier in the 19th century. We have drownings for, of art school students that dates back from 1867. And the first literary text that refers to the Inconnu de la Seine is in fact a British text uh, from a decadent writer in 1898. So uh, the date is as well, not not certainly correct. Right. Um, what, but what is the fascination then with this particular face, with this particular unknown woman? What it, and it's been like well, two hundred years. What is the fascination? So the fascination has been extreme, and and I think it it's because it condenses many paradoxes. I will say of our own relationship to death. Um, she's supposed to represent a form of, in a way, violent, anonymous death in a big city, but she looks like the, you know, the contrary image to to what death is about. It's a very romantic topos. She's young and beautiful. Uh, that's one thing. Um, also, the fact that there's an impossibility, in fact, to to find a precise date. Um, is, is something that has triggered a lot of fascination. And you have this beautiful face with many ellipses, with many, you know, holes or blanks attached to a story so people can project onto it so many things. Um, and also she's resonant uh, to many anthropological practices uh, and historical um and, and to the historical context of the of 19th century Paris, so she also belongs to, if you want, a mythology of the city in a way. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating, isn't it? That fact that this still we don't know a whole lot about the actual case of how this woman ended up where she did. Like the, it was never solved. We still don't know who she is. No, we don't know who she is. We we can't even 
we don't have an original uh, of of the mold of of the inconnu because molders used to swap uh, uh, molds uh, in the 19th century. It's a practice that was inherited from molders uh, in, in the Quattrocento. So they, you don't have, if you want, one original mold that will enable to, to, to fix the date. That's one thing. Um, so there's a, a, a halo of enigma that will certainly not be resolved. Um, and of course, this, this is a, you know, a true provocation for, for imagination. Um, but why she has become so so fascinating to me. It's because she condenses many uh, contradictory elements. She's young and beautiful, but she's dead. She looks uh, dead and alive. Uh, she's anonymous, but she's famous. Uh, she's modern and she's ancient. So in a way, she kind of uh, embodies the very mechanism of fascination itself. It certainly seems... And she has been... Sorry. I was, I was going to say, I also wanted to ask you about the death mask, because yeah. that's how she obviously became better known. Was that a, a popular thing at the time to make death masks and why? Yes, it was extremely popular in the 19th century. Uh, it's an anthropological practice we have kept to forget, in fact, but um, it started with a, a certain cult of the artistic genius uh, in Europe. Masks were made, death masks were made on famous people at the time of, of the burial. You have a very famous mask of Beethoven, you have one of Napoleon, you have one of Jericho, um, and, and the list is in fact quite quite uh, quite long but in the in the second half of the 19th century the practice became something that was associated with 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 uh, burial rites people would made an imprint of the face of their dear ones uh, before their body would decompose as a, a, a way to to keep uh, a trace of of, of them uh, to keep a memory um, it's was called the last portrait, this practice, and it needs to be as well related to the practice of the photographic last portrait. One thing we tend to have forgotten as well is that the, the photography as a practice was developed along with mm -hmm. uh, death portrait. So the death mask is, is, is part of that as well. Um, so they were very popular, but with the Inconnu de la Seine, what I would say specific is that it's a female mask. Uh, famous death masks tend to be death masks of famous men. And here you have a death mask of a woman, that's one thing, and plus she's anonymous. Um, and she also became famous in the interwar period because her image was reproduced in a collection of death masks um, by, by an art historian. Um, and this collection was called Das Edwige Entlitz in German, mm -hmm. which was translated as The Eternal Face. And you had this collection of famous death masks, but the mask of the Inconnu closes this collection and she's the only anonymous mask so it's to be noted as well it is fascinating thank you so much for telling us about it today thank you so much for your invitation was that not so interesting? That's Dr. Ange Sayo, who's an associate professor of romance studies and director of the Center for French and Francophone Studies at Duke University. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us on this Friday morning to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. And hey, I'm listening to your news and I'm looking at the news lineup for the day. We've got Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, a 9 a.m. press conference here in Victoria. He's the minister responsible for ferries. And, you know, I'm going, hey, the minister is going to come out and... What, apologize for the mess? I, um, is that really what's going to happen? No. <laughs> I don't know about this is, that. Um, this is pre-scheduled, and the topic is a different one. So Fleming is responsible for ferries, and uh, people have been having trouble getting a hold of him in the media for the last couple of days over the troubles. But uh, anyway, he's on at 9 o'clock here in Victoria, but it's pre-scheduled. It's um, with the federal infrastructure minister, and they're going to talk about plans to replace the ferry terminal in the harbor, the terminal that uh, serves the two ferry services that go to the United States. So the Coho that goes to Port Angeles and the Clipper, which goes to Seattle. So that's the topic. Yeah, will you actually get to that topic? (laughs) Well, they do get to talk first. So I expect uh, the local news media will all be there, our colleagues, and they'll listen politely. And I will be surprised if any of the questions deal with anything other than what's going on at BC Ferries. How long are we going to have to listen to these excuses? Why can't they even get the website to work, you know, the app? Like it's gone uh, off a cliff, right? It's like yeah, no. <laughs> it was barely held together and now it's just fallen apart. Yeah, We're going to yeah. be talking to Nicholas Jimenez about yeah. that this morning too, just because those are my questions. Like if you know you've got a long weekend coming and you've already yeah. had issues this year, wouldn't it be, a, you know, a so to speak, an all hands on deck situation? You, you want to make sure this long weekend goes off without a hitch so you can show people that you're on the job. Yes. The other thing, too, is the handoff to Jimenez by the politicians in the government. I mean, um, it used to be that the ferries were at sufficient arm's length from political control that it was legitimate to leave it to the CEO of the ferries or to the chair of the board to handle this stuff. You know, you'd talk to the government about the, the long-term contract, maybe about funding, but really it was set up arm's length. But the New Democrats have taken back political control of the ferries. They appointed a former NDP cabinet minister to run the ferries. Joy McPhail, she went in and she fired the CEO on instructions from the Premier's office. She brought in her hand-picked CEO, Jimenez, and really um, political control of the ferries is back. So 
it's legitimate to say, where's the minister? And at 9 o'clock this morning, the minister will be there. And I know there will be lots of questions about this. So we'll be talking more about that this morning as well. Uh, can we also talk about this Ministry of Children and Family Development story? Because, Don Vaughn, yeah. we've been asking all week to talk to the minister, Mitzi Dean, and haven't been able to do that yet. But it, 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 once again, here we are talking about this topic, and we've been doing this for years. Yeah, Simi, I mean, this is an awful case. The, the details of the way these children were treated, torture. Uh, one of the children beaten to death. They're they're so awful that I would be reluctant to repeat some of the details on the airwaves. They they have been reported, so you know people can go out there and see that. But yes, it's an awful case. Uh, you've had indigenous leaders calling for the minister to resign. I, I mean, some of this abuse happened on her watch, Mitzi Dean. But just as a recognition of what a fundamental failure this was in the system. I I know you had the watchdog on yesterday, Mm -hmm. Jennifer Charlesworth. She said the worst thing she's ever seen, and she's been involved in one way or another in the system for decades. So it's a terrible case. Um, The Green Party, Simi, has now joined the calls for Mitzi Dean to resign, and she hasn't. The one thing the ministry did say yesterday is that the two social workers who failed in this case to – it failed in their responsibilities to these children for months. Like they're supposed to keep track of them, check up on them in person, visit them in foster care. Mm -hmm. Seven months they didn't do it. So they've been fired. So – um, we don't but, know how many people. They didn't say how many people we're no. talking about here. Like, it, it just, that's yeah. good, but... Yeah, I mean, this this case has been going on in the background for a while. There were guilty pleas last year by the two foster parents. The two foster parents are themselves. The children are Indigenous. The foster parents are Indigenous. We are not allowed to report the names because there was a court order to protect the privacy of the surviving child. So that's why some of our reporting isn't as detailed as we'd like to do. There wasn't a trial, Simi, so we're reliant on the agreed-upon statement of facts between the defense and the prosecution. That was the basis for the sentencing last week. Uh, Ten years for manslaughter, six years for aggravated assault served concurrently. So... You know, we know some things about the case. Everybody has a lot of questions about it. I think the only way we're ever really going to get to the bottom of it now is the Charlesworth investigation. But in the interim, yes, the ministry does say, uh, I think they said two social workers who were responsible for dealing with the children have been fired. But this one's going to go on for a while. Uh, even the people that know the system well, Simi, are just shaking their heads with disbelief about this one. And I'm so tired of doing this story. I was, you know, saying that this week is that over the years, Vaughn, how many times have we done a story like this? Yeah, and Charles said one thing to you yesterday, Simi, that I'm going to look up because I didn't know about this. I missed it. She said that she put out a report, her office, recently, she said, surveying 
all of the recommendations that her office, the child and youth representative, have made to the ministry during her five years as representative, and she said it's a mixed record. Some have been accepted, some have not. So I made a note listening to her talking to you yesterday to say, I got to have a look at that report and see what I've been missing. Yes, because I would be very interested in that as well. I mean, go back 30 years, there's been a bunch of reports yeah. on this, oh, yeah. right? How much no, has changed? I mean, this has been going on for a long time. And, it, it, you know, the Indigenous leaders, um, again, go back to some of the awful cases that happened in the past. One of the issues that Indigenous leaders have raised is when Indigenous children are taken away from their families, they want the children placed with other indigenous people, preferably in their own community. That seems to be what happened here. But, it, you know, and I, I hear grumbling from people saying, well, you know, what do are, what are the indigenous people have to say about this? And I go, well, you know, the ministry still has the responsibility to check up on the children and make sure they're safe and protected. Yeah. Because it's the government that takes the children away from their parents. It's not indigenous people that make that decision. There are indigenous care agencies with indigenous people involved. Of course, Simi, we know statistically about half the children in care over the years have been indigenous children. They're only 7% of the population, but there's some very troubled communities there and some troubled families. And that's why the numbers are so high. But at the end of the day, the responsibility is still with the ministry. And I think that's why the the case is so awful that uh, people have been saying the minister should resign. Just as a, if nothing else, as a recognition of how awful this case is and the failings of her ministry. The fact that she won't even do interviews. Yes. One interview she did do for Global is... You know, she gave the same answer to the same question seven times, a message box answer. I mean, cabinet minister in that ministry, you've got to be accountable at some level to the public. It always amazes me now with so many changes of government and doing this job for so long is that that, that ministry is so important. And yet time and time again, there's a minister in there that doesn't know how to handle a, a controversy or difficult questions yeah. when that is the very yeah. nature of that ministry. Yeah. I mean, yes, there are privacy restrictions in the ministry, and caution is necessary, but that's a call for a minister who is capable and competent and can handle delicate issues, not a call for a minister who, in this case, has so far run for cover. Exactly. Okay, and very quickly, before I let you go here, uh, we have to pay tribute to someone who's passed away. It's Stephen Owen. I was surprised to see this. Yeah, Stephen Owen. He's only 74 years old. The Owen family, let's see, we had a mayor of Vancouver who was a relative. We had a lieutenant governor who was a relative. Uh, Stephen Owen, one of those people that uh, his public service record is incredible. I mean, he was deputy attorney general. He was ombudsman. He was the land use commissioner. Uh, he was a federal MP. Uh, he's one of those people, Simi, that had so much respect across the political spectrum that when he came in and did a report, um, everybody accepted that Owen was right. There, there was 
He was able to bridge some of the most bitter partisan divides in B.C. Mm-hmm. We saw that with the first land use planning that he did in the 1990s, where he brought together the industry and environmental activists and indigenous people and communities and got preliminary agreement on on management of the land with environmental issues and industry issues and logging and all that. He also handled, look, it would take me an hour to explain I know, all, all I know. of the aspects. But amazing, he stepped though. into one of the messiest political scandals in British Columbia history, a scandal that involved a cabinet minister who was fired for giving a lottery grant to a relative. The handling of the right. thing within the ministry was a messy. A G resigned, but look, it resulted in our special prosecutor system in BC. Stephen Owen recommended it, brought it in. It's still there and it ensures where a politician is involved, the matter is handled at arm's length by special prosecutors to ensure no political interference. Amazing. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Sim. This is Mornings with Simi. It is that time of the week when we check in with our Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, for a wrap-up of all the stuff that's going on in the United States in the past week. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Honestly, I don't know where to start today, so you pick. What would you like to talk about first? I, I would say let's start with um, with the U.S. Supreme Court, only because uh, within the last three minutes, we've had the, the first of the final two rulings, which will have an impact right across the country. Uh, and this one is big. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has 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 sided with a Colorado web designer uh, in a case that opened up questions as to whether or not LGBTQ2 plus rights uh, in the U.S. would be potentially um, rolled back. And the decision this morning is that this this website designer, this Christian website designer uh, who refuses in the future, she's never done this before, to have to be able to create a website for a same sex couple. Um, the court has sided with her to say that she is a public business, but she does uh, that this infringes on her First Amendment right to free speech it infringes on her uh religious freedoms um and there are there are now critical voices that are coming out to say that this could potentially open a door here for any business to begin openly uh discriminating against any person in this country because they feel that it impacts their either freedom of speech or religion. Can you mention how this is like a string of of Supreme Court decisions this week because they're wrapping up, right? They're issuing a whole bunch of decisions that they have been then hearing cases on. Yes, uh, and this is the last day of of the calendar. It usually wraps up end of June, beginning of July. This is a big one. Uh, we're also anticipating a ruling coming either for or against the Biden administration on his ability to wipe out up to twenty thousand dollars in student loans for um, for for graduates across this country at a cost of tens of billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. That is expected to come down within the next couple of minutes, and it comes on the same um, you know week, the same you know last twenty four hours or so, uh, which the Supreme Court. Court opted to strike down affirmative action uh, when it comes to college admission. So this is a this is a conservative leaning Supreme Court that in its final days is leaning into the conservative value. Okay, so the affirmative action one is another big one, isn't it? 
It is big, uh, and that's because long-standing precedent has once again under this court uh, been overturned in this country. And since the 1960s, affirmative action has allowed for universities to use race as a uh, as a way to accept students into school uh, because you know oftentimes Black and Latino Americans would find themselves underrepresented in uh, in big schools, especially in Ivy League schools where legacy students uh, oftentimes would take precedence here. Uh, not allowing for affirmative action now could potentially uh, leave these schools underrepresented when it comes to black and Latino students. It could potentially lead to a boost in enrollment in historically black colleges and universities across this country. But again, this is um, this is facing criticism from within um, the black communities in the United States. At the same time, um, Asian Americans are saying, look, affirmative action oftentimes discriminated against this particular group of people. So you have conflicting opinions on on one decision that came down from the courts yesterday. And interesting, I was seeing what Harvard had to say about this, because there was a little bit of a loophole right in the decision that said they may consider how race has impacted uh, a, a potential student's life. And Harvard said, that's exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, and look, this came from the Supreme Court, uh, from the Chief Justice, rather, who said in his opinion um, that students or prospective students would be able to use race in their their entrance essays to school or the, the essays to schools to see if they'd be a prospective student there. Uh, and schools say, look, we will take life experience. We will take, um, you know, into consideration what a student has gone through, a prospective student has gone through, uh, and that can be in their essay. It just means that the, the, the quota or, or the kind of decision on race alone is no longer to be in the hands of, of school administrators. Right. Okay, so th- those are big Supreme Court issues. There's a bunch of other stuff we have to talk about this morning, too, including, uh, let's talk about the campaign for the presidency on the Republican side of things. We've got two interesting stories. One, is there more coming for former President Donald Trump? There's potentially a lot more coming for, for the former president, uh, already facing uh, the indictment on 37 counts linked to the mishandling of classified documents. We've understood now uh, that the that the special counsel is continuing the investigation, that the, the grand jury uh, is continuing to meet. But we've also learned over the last kind of 24 hours-ish that the former president could face 30, 35, 40, 45 more potential charges, and that could either come in Florida or if the special counsel feels that this case uh, may be in the hands of a judge that you know could be leaning in Trump's favor, these could be put in a different venue. We don't know what the charges are. It means that he has additional information and additional uh, evidence uh, linked to this case. So it's either going to be a superseding indictment or a new indictment. And this is going to be hugely problematic for the person who is still the leading candidate for the Republican Party. Okay, there's that. Let's talk about Ron DeSantis, because honestly, Reggie, it's not very often we can talk about something that is, quote, mildly radioactive being used in roads. I mean, look, Ron DeSantis has used the last few months to really push these kind of bizarre pieces of legislation that oftentimes face far more criticism than they do applaud from within his state. But this one, uh, it comes from, you know, it shows that the power of lobbying is still alive and well in this country and in Florida and that money can help buy you things. Uh, and essentially what the, the governor has done here is allowed for a company to potentially use radioactive material in uh, the materials that are used to, to build roads uh, because they say that this is an easy way to kind of get rid of toxic waste, uh, even though they the company would stand to benefit by earning tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars from this. Environmental critics say, look, this is clearly not something that we need to be doing. This this toxic waste is kept in stacks. Let's not put it into the ground. But Ron DeSantis signed the bill approving it, uh, that this could become a statewide 
mandate to allow toxic materials into the roads. <laughs> it's kind of crazy when you describe it like that. It's Florida. Thank you. Okay. As speaking of which, another story out of Florida, this one going back to the Parkland School massacre and finally uh, a ruling in that case. Yeah, the school officer who had been accused of not doing uh, enough to, to prevent the shooter from uh, from continuing to move throughout the school uh, and killing students uh, was found not guilty. Uh, 19 hours of deliberation. Uh, this this His legal team argued that this was a, a semi-political case. They argued that he did the best that he could. Uh, Prosecutor said absolutely he did not do the best that he could because there were teachers and students who were able to locate this shooter, yet this school resource officer ran away from the scene. Ultimately, the jury didn't believe it. It was the first time a law enforcement officer had ever been in a position of finding himself potentially on the legal hook here during a school shooting, but ultimately he has now been cleared of all charges. All right. Another interesting week. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. And of course, there is more coming, as Reggie mentioned, as the U.S. Supreme Court has issued a whole bunch of very significant rulings this week. And there's another one expected this morning. And so, yeah, keep it tuned in here for the latest. This is Mornings with Simi. Children that are in care have very complex needs in many cases. And so what we need is a higher level of expertise, understanding, compassion, and skill and support. And what I worry about is that we're asking people who are ill-equipped to do this work. That's BC's representative for children and youth, Jennifer Charlesworth. So all this week, we have been talking about the story of two children who were in the care of the Ministry of Children and Family Development. But... The ministry failed to check on them for months. They were systematically abused by their foster parents during that time. Those foster parents have now been sentenced to 10 years in prison for the death of the 11-year-old boy and the serious injuries to his 8-year-old sister. The story is horrific. And despite our best efforts, the minister, Mitzi Dean, has been unavailable to come on the show to talk about all of the failings, and there are many in this case. But the ministry did say this yesterday. They said they have conducted a review and, quote, as a result, the staff members who failed to check on those two children have lost their jobs. Now, we don't know exactly how many staff or who they were. All we know is that the, quote, staff who were directly involved in this case are no longer employed by the ministry. Does that fix things? Heck no, it does not. Still leaves us with a lot of questions about this. And now we have the opposition parties calling for Minister Mitzi Dean's resignation. We also heard the Indigenous groups saying the same thing. They talked to us about that days ago here on the show. But let's talk about the difference this makes now when you've got the opposition parties, both BC United and the BC Greens, saying the same thing. Corinne Kirkpatrick is with us now, the child care critic for BC United. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks, Amy. What do you think needs to happen here? Uh, well, I support uh, the First Nations Leadership Council in asking for this minister's resignation. Ultimately, uh, she is at the top of the ministry. She's got responsibility. And we need to send a message to British Columbians and our Indigenous communities that this government understands the seriousness of this. And, uh, and it's, it's that significant. Why do these stories keep happening over the years you know periodically this comes up again why can't we fix this ministry 
MCFD is probably, I will say, one of the most difficult ministries because it looks after our most vulnerable and our children. Um, But as the representative said, this is the most egregious thing that she's seen in 46 years of looking after children. This is is different, and it, um, it continues to not be fixed. In the last seven years, the representative has made a number of recommendations that MCFD has simply not implemented. So it is a tough, uh, a tough file. Uh, but this government has uh, has done more to um, mismanage it than uh, than I can imagine. Okay, in what ways? Uh, well, we hear, and um, as uh, the First Nations Leadership Council has also said, this is not an isolated event. It perhaps is isolated in how egregious it is, uh, but there have been a number of times where um, children are simply not checked on. Uh, processes are simply not followed. If you look at the audit of practices at MCFD, there are often times where families, uh, foster families aren't properly vetted. Uh, Criminal record checks aren't done prior to placing children in homes. So this is something consistent where there have been opportunities to address these issues and make things better, but it simply hasn't happened. Any um, any effort that you've made there to talk to the minister about this? Like, what's it like trying to get answers from the government on this? Well, I have the same issue that you have, <laughs> trying to get uh, have a conversation with the minister. I was shocked, actually, when I saw the initial clip of the minister's response to this. It's rote, it's cold, it's not feeling, and it's just rereading two or three key messages the government has provided to her. Um, so no, and when there are conversations with this minister, there are never details given. There's never specific information. Um, if you ask specifically about what are the changes that happened? What was the investigation when MCFD was, uh, you know, investigating MCFD? There's no answers to that. We we still don't understand what happened and, and how it failed these children. That's exactly what I was thinking too. All right. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thanks, Amy. Have a good day. You too. That's Corinne Kirkpatrick, who is the critic for the Ministry of Children and Family Development, but for BC United, the opposition there. Both opposition parties, BC United, BC Greens, calling for the resignation or the firing of MCFD Minister Mitzi Dean. We've been trying to get Mitzi Dean on the show all this week. We're going to keep trying to get Mitzi Dean on the show because, as we've heard time and time again, there are still so many questions here and somebody needs to answer for them. You would think that would be the minister in charge, right? This is Mornings with Simi. Why does this keep happening? Seems inevitable. Long weekend coming? Well, there's probably going to be some problems at BC Ferries. And yes, there are. Eight daily sailings between Swartz Bay and Tawasson have been cancelled because of mechanical issues. So reservations on those sailings for the next few days have been moved to other vessels. Meaning, if you don't have a reservation already, you are probably out of luck if you want to travel that route between now and July 3rd. So obviously we want to know, how does this keep happening? Well, joining us now is Nicholas Jimenez, who's the CEO of BC Ferries. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. Listen, how, how does this keep happening? We have a long weekend. We know there's going to be a lot of pressure on BC ferries. Why Why do we keep seeing these problems? Um, well, it's frustrating. I think it's frustrating for everybody. And I can certainly 
I can certainly understand where customers are feeling feeling the pinch. Um, I mean, I can give you a little bit of the backdrop, and then we can get into to sort of more more questions. But I mean, the reality is, we start our refit schedule of all of our vessels in September, and so you know we do over the course of September to June about twenty vessels. So there's a long schedule; it's well planned. The challenge for us is we have a very limited number of shipyards where we can actually do this work here in British Columbia. In this particular case, with this particular vessel, there was one shipyard that bid on the work, and their availability to do this work was in the May to early June timeframe. Now, that's a little bit later than what we would ordinarily want, but that's what we had based on you know the fact that they have other customers and they have other issues with their shipyards, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we were always going to be a little bit tight, and we ran into a couple of issues related to the shipyard. They had their own challenges with their workforce, and they had supply chain issues. And then we had a more complicated repair on this particular vessel, the Coastal Celebration. So all of that said, it ate up all the contingency that we would normally have, and it led to the situation we have right now, which is, um, you know, a very, very busy, long weekend traveling period. Right. I guess my question with that then is, like you said, there was one available window there. Isn't there any way to get around that? Like when you know that there's a long weekend coming and you know people are going to be judging BC Ferries for it, shouldn't this be all costs of like we should be avoiding this at all costs? We should. We absolutely should. And I can tell you, we worked very hard with the shipyard to to see if we could jump the queue, get ahead of their other customers. But their other customers have their issues. They have you know, uh, vessels to repair and get out into into the market as well. So, you know, when it comes right down to it, we're 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 at the mercy a little bit of the fact that there's just very limited shipbuilding and ship repair capabilities here in the province. Now, I don't want to make an excuse because we have to own the accountability, uh, but there are certain things that I cannot change, uh, and that is one of them. Okay, so how do we change that though, or make a difference on that moving forward? Because well, this can't keep happening on long weekends. No, it can't. Now, this, I mean, to be honest with you, this is a fairly, you know, unique situation. Uh, and, you know, what I will say, thankfully, yesterday, you know, the, the issue that we were really worried about was crewing. That's one we've been very open and very public about. And that is a lot. Uh, you know, we do own that problem. Uh, and that wasn't an issue yesterday. We had one uh, sailing that was canceled on Comox River because of a, of a crew shortage. We were able to find uh, a mechanic from the lower mainland. We flew them up right away and we were able to carry on with the sailings uh, up uh, in the Comox area that day, which was great. So that's the kind of thing that <laughs> that we were planning for and hoping wouldn't happen and, and didn't. Now, that, that's one day. We've got four more days over the long weekend period. So we're going to do our best to make sure that we're ready to to move instantly when we have problems. And, and, you know, I've been very clear with this in the first three months of my time here. We are going to have problems. This, the resilience around staffing, um, it's not where it needs to be. And it's, there is no immediate fix to that. And I wish I could tell our customers uh, a different story, but I can't just snap my fingers and make that problem go away. It's going to take years to fully recover from the pandemic and, and really the, the, the slowness, I think, that we moved to kind of deal with the fact that a lot of people are retiring and people making different career choices. And we just don't have the people in this business that we need to run uh, with the full resilience and reliability that I think our customers expect. And what is what is the recruitment been like? I know BC Ferries has a big push on hiring more people. Is that providing results? 
Well, it is. It is. We had uh, record levels of recruitment in the last 12 months. Uh, we have uh, 500 more people working for us today than we did at this point last year. Um, that's a good thing. And yet, that is not enough. Uh, so there's two kinds of issues we have here. So we need you know, all kinds of different people to run our vessels. Transport Canada has very specific, you know, regulations in place for, you know, for certified uh, staff. It's all built on safety and it's great. makes a ton of sense. Um, but where we struggle is in the licensed officer categories. Um, you know, these are the really technical people. People probably don't realize how complicated it is to run, you know, this business and these vessels. And you really need trained, experienced, certified people to do that. And what we're finding is they're, they're just harder to find. Uh, and that's not just true for us. I met with my colleagues uh, at Alaska State Ferries this week, uh, and, you know, their challenges are even more profound than ours when it comes to, to crewing levels. They're, they're down somewhere uh, in the hundreds. They have seven or 800 people that they need to run their vessels, and I think they have something like 450 or 500. So, so we're all experiencing this issue. We need more people into the industry. We need to double down on training. We need to look at compensation. We, you know, it's, it's a system uh, problem, not just sort of mm-hmm. a one-off, let's hire people for the summer problem. But how can people trust the system then? If they need to get, and this is a lifeline, right? It's part of our yeah, highway system. Is. How can we count on getting to and from the island? Well, the best way to do that is to make reservations. And what I'll tell you, uh, you know, the, the July long weekend is our second busiest uh, uh, traveling period. Uh, the longest, the busiest is usually the August long weekend. In the big routes like our Tawas and Schwartz Bay route, about 80% of customers are making reservations. And that is the best way to ensure uh, that you're going to get where you need to go. Uh, everyone who made a reservation with us because of the coastal celebration uh, delay in the refit, they were all accommodated. We were able to get those, honor the, the obligation we had to those customers. So I would tell people, you know, if if it's not too late for your travel plans, make a reservation. Uh, certainly this weekend, it's going to be challenging. Uh, you, you will not you will not find that reservation. And so, if you don't have one, I would encourage people, sadly, not to come. Or if you do come, you're going to wait. Um, and, and in some cases, it's going to be more than one or two, maybe even three sailings. Yeah, it's a long one um, right now. Looking at your current is. conditions page. Uh, yeah, look- I'm, I'm I'm here at Horseshoe Bay, and I'm looking out the window. There's there's a lot of traffic here, but it's moving. But there's a lot of traffic. Yeah. Let's look ahead to the BC day long weekend then, because that's a big one here in BC. Any major ships that need repairs before that? Like, are you putting all hands on deck for staffing that weekend? No. Well, uh, so no one, yes. (laughs) We don't do refits and repairs uh, unless they're emergency repairs in the summer period. I mean, that's why we spend September to June doing all the maintenance work that we need to on these vessels so that we have everything we can possibly deploy over our peak period, which, as you know, is the summer, mm-hmm. uh, between sort of mid-June to early September. Um, so we will have staffing, uh, you know, where hopefully where it needs to be. On any given day, you, you can never know if someone's going to get sick or injured uh, or have a family emergency. So we, we're, we're ready to move and poised to act, but we hope for the best. Uh, we plan for the worst. Um, and I think that's what customers would expect us to do. So uh, we'll 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 take the same approach we did with this weekend to that weekend, which is, you know, prepare, 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 and uh, and really encourage people to plan ahead, make reservations, and if they don't have reservations, consider consider a different travel plan. All right, we'll see what happens. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate the call today. That's Nicholas Jimenez, who's the CEO of BC Ferries, being really honest about. 
you know, the delays, the problems, the maintenance that needed to be done, this, the, the ship repairs that needed to be done, and they just don't have the capacity in terms of the people who can fix that. Uh, and that is the problem. That's why eight sailings were canceled between Tawasna and Swartz Bay, causing all this backup and problems. It's going to be an ongoing issue over this week in taking a look at the BC Ferries current conditions page. If you don't have a reservation... As Nicholas just said, you likely will not be traveling uh, to and from the island. It's going to be very challenging. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. What is the bigger fix for this? This is Mornings with Simi. It's time for us to check in on how our Vancouver Whitecaps are doing. But man, what a week Coach Vanny Sartini has had. Have a listen to this. Okay, so you're like, well, what is that? Oh, that's a Nickelback concert. Yeah, great, right? Guess who was on stage with Nickelback? Yeah, Vanny Sartini was. He joins us now to talk, talk more about that. Good morning, Coach. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? Good. I'm surprised you still have your voice because it feels like you've yeah. been singing and having a good time this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a pretty uh, eventful week, I would say. <laughs> that's, uh, uh, we, we had fun... Uh, I, I had a lot of fun at the, at the Nickelback concert uh, on Wednesday. And then also last week, we, we did our first uh, win on the road. So as you said before, it was a very good week. Very good week. That was 3-2 in Los Angeles. That was a great win there. So even with the draws and the outright wins, what is this, a five-game five unbeaten streak? Yeah, five games unbeaten streak. And, uh, you know, we, we said it numerous times that uh, uh, if we want to getting to the high position of the standings. Uh, we have to keep doing the thing that we're doing here at home because we're winning games at home, but we had to improve uh, what we're doing uh, away. And it was a great way to do it in, in Los Angeles on uh, on Saturday against the number one team in the Western Conference. So, yeah, hopefully this is just a start. Just a start because you're off to Kansas City, right? That's for tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah today, we after training, we fly to Kansas City and... Uh, and then we play tomorrow there. It's uh, yeah, it's another chance, I would say, to to get another win on the road. And it's going to be really hard, also because uh, um, I see the I saw the forecast is like going to be like I don't know, 37 degrees, really really hot. So it's going to be very very demanding. And uh, um, but uh, yeah, we, we we go there to to try to uh, to make uh, the the second win in in a row on the road. Okay, well, listen, we'll be watching, so good luck. Before I let you go, what's your favorite Nickelback song? Uh, now I can say Rockstar, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, to be honest, my favorite, uh, my favorite song probably is Photograph. So that's the thing. Love it. I love that you had a quick answer for that, too. Listen, good luck yeah. this weekend. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thank you. That's Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They play Kansas City tomorrow, so make sure you listen because you can find all the Whitecaps games on our sister station AM 730. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know that it was on June 30th, 1905, that a very young Albert Einstein first published a paper in a German physics journal that outlined the beginnings of his theory of relativity? I know, amazing, right? 1905. June 30th, all those years ago, and scientists and researchers all over the world are still working today to confirm parts of it, to still study parts of it. And you know what? 
In fact, an international group of scientists has actually made this week a groundbreaking discovery. And they did this by kind of harnessing and using the Milky Way as an antenna to detect the first evidence of low-frequency gravitational waves. And yes, that was also part of the theory of relativity. And you know what? There's a local connection to this. A lot of work on this being done by researchers at UBC. Let's find out more about that. Catherine Crowder joins us now, PhD candidate at the UBC's Department of Physics and Astronomy. Catherine, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, tell me about this work. Like, how, You were part of this team of research. What did UBC, what was the role here? Um, so I think there's a few steps that goes into getting to this place. Um, so you have these gravitational waves, right? So ripples in the fabric of space-time itself. Um, and as you say, they're predicted by Einstein. They come from a few different sources. Um, one of them is supermassive black holes. So if you have a galaxy, it has a super black hole, massive black hole at the center. When those merge, they end up circling each other and sending out these ripples. Uh, but what we see is not just ripples from one thing, it's ripples from many things. Uh, so we're detecting these ripples in space-time. And space-time is hard to measure. <laughs> you can't just uh, think, say, oh, I think this piece of space over here is stretching. Let me get out my ruler <laughs> and measure it. Because um, the ruler itself is also stretching. Uh, so we use this trick. We use this wonderful gift from nature, uh, with these things called pulsars. Uh, they're what happens when massive stars reach the end of their life and go supernova. Sometimes, if you get lucky, uh, you're left with a pulsar, something that's absolutely incredible. They're one and a half times the mass of our sun squished into the size of Vancouver from about you know the island to the North Shore, and some of them rotate faster than a blender. Um, Faster than a blender. Yeah, right? Isn't that incredible? Yeah. (laughs) Like one and a half times the mass of your sun going faster than the blender in your kitchen. First of all, Catherine, I love your enthusiasm for this. (laughs) You clearly are very passionate about it. But what's amazing to me as well is that we have all this technology in the modern day and we are Mm -hmm. still working to confirm and talk about the theories of Albert Einstein who wrote them, you know, 120 years ago. Yeah. They're incredible. Like, we're still working on them, as you say. So these gravitational waves, as they stretch and squish space-time, etc., they're effectively really, really, really small. So it's kind of like the width of the Earth changing by the size of the virus. Uh, so some of it is that gravity is a really weak force, and so you need uh, measurements uh, to confirm it that are really, really hard to take. <laughs> right. So, so essentially what it's saying is, to put this in like lay people's terms, is that gravity is not a smooth thing. This is like a, mm-hmm. a bumpy field, and there's all sorts of movement happening in there. Yeah, exactly. And we're trying to, um, we're finding evidence for, yeah, that movement. And what's really cool is that uh, so we do it measuring these pulsars, right? And by comparing its effect on different pulsars across the sky, you kind of see the signature of how the gravitational waves were moving. And uh, the gravitational waves, according to Einstein, move in a certain way. Uh, I mean, we're seeing evidence for them, so Einstein was already correct again. Diego Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so, how is my question? Like, what was he looking at to come up with these thoughts when it's take? you just explained to us the complicated process of kind of confirming that? He was just thinking about it, right? He was just coming up with experiments in his head and kind of logicking it out. It is 
absolutely incredible that uh, Einstein was able to theorize and predict so much uh, from, yeah, just doing Amazing. thought experiments. Amazing. Okay, so where does this go from here? Now that we've we found this, what next? So we're just like starting to see the signature. Uh, as time goes on, we'll get to see it better and better. And as we combine our efforts with groups around the world, we can do that too. So what we have at the moment is evidence for, you know, Einstein. But there are some alternate theories of gravity too. And what they say is basically Einstein with a little something extra, you know, a little special source. Um, and they imprint a different signature. So in the future, we'll be able to put limits on those or, you know, maybe find a hint of one of those too. Like maybe we've reached the limits of what Einstein's relativity can tell us or maybe it continues on for some time still. <laughs> okay. And so the, what does it take to take those next steps though? Like it's researchers again all over the world, but we are talking some high powered telescopes too, aren't we? We are like the, some of the largest telescopes in the world. <laughs> and also it takes a lot of time. Uh, we're measuring low frequency gravitational waves. So those are really slow. Like our, the first point in our data set comes from 2004. Like what were you doing in 2004? <laughs> I have no idea. I cannot remember back that far. <laughs> right? It's a really long term thing to detect these things. Uh, luckily, we don't need another 15 years. Uh, now that we have that baseline, we just need to keep going and our results get better and better. Okay, so now that we know this, that there are there's waves that kind of are ripples in the fabric of the universe that kind of warp space-time, what does all that mean to us? Um, on a kind of everyday level, honestly, not that much. <laughs> like, you're not going to feel it. You're not going to feel it stretching you or squishing here. Um, but, I mean, in the future, who knows, right? Um, this is the first, uh, like, a while ago, um, another experiment found the first detection of gravitational waves uh, at really high frequencies. And we're now just finding this one at lower frequencies. Uh, there's a whole lot of space to fill in there, uh, kind of like in visible light and the optical spectrum. We have you know, what you can see, then you have x-rays, and you have radio waves and all of this. Uh, so we need to like, fill in that spectrum, and that can tell us so much more. And then, you know, who knows what we can do? If you want to tinker with gravitational waves or make a time machine or something. You have to be able to <laughs> see the thing first, right? <laughs> I love the way you just throw the time machine thing in there because... One of my friends asked me. <laughs> oh, okay. Because you never know. And are these the kinds of questions that keep you fascinated and interested in all this? Absolutely. Like, I find it mind-blowing that this is a thing that we can't really see. We have, like, this window into the universe that we haven't got before. And who knows what we can do with it? <laughs> exactly. Catherine, thank you so much for that today. Thanks for having me.